All right, turn to Daniel 11. We got a lot to cover. This is a huge chapter, and this is a chapter I have not been looking forward to, if I'm honest. Like, this is a crazy chapter, okay? I said before, most guys, when they preach Daniel, they, they go one through six, and they quit, and chapter 11 is a big reason why. It is a mess in there. There's a lot. If you just, anybody try to read it before, before you came? It, it's just like, I, you know, first reading, like, I don't know what to do with that. Second reading, I still, like, I read it like five times. Stacy was asking me a few weeks ago, hey, what's the plan for your sermon schedule for June? I don't know what to do with these passages of prophecy. It is a, it is a mess, it, and, and, it, and it, is, it is crazy. And some commentators would even say, hey, there's a lot of prophecy there. Don't even try to preach it. But we believe that God's word says about God's word that it's all profitable. It's all useful for teaching, preaching, and reproof. So we're going to dive in. And the good news is after studying this for a week plus uh, and getting my mind around at least some of it, I'm now actually quite excited. Charles Swindoll said that this chapter is one of the most remarkable chapters in the entire Bible. And here's why. Because another commentator uh, named Donald Campbell points out that in the first 35 verses, Alone in Daniel 11, there are at least 135 prophecies that have been literally fulfilled and can be corroborated by a study of the history of that period. So this is an incredible book, so much so that Bible critics, liberal Bible scholars that want to criticize, they have no answer for this. This is so specific, so many things that actually that God called for, you know, 200 plus years back in history that played out in specificity in literal terms that that. Liberal critics would say there's no way this was written as prophecy. This had to have been written later and sort of presented as prophecy. We know that's not true. We're going to see a mention of this in, in this same chapter, but we looked back in chapter 8 at how God prophesied to Daniel that this ruler from Greece would come and the way that he, which he would come, and we know that's, prophet, that's fulfilled in Alexander, and we know from Josephus, a historian, that Alexander, that it was written long before him because when he came into Jerusalem to conquer him, him and a high priest through an incredible story that I don't have time to recap, they go into the temple, offer a sacrifice, and the high priest reads Daniel 8 and Daniel 11 and says, God has anointed you, this is you, go forward, he has your back. So there's no way it was written later because Alexander himself read this in the midst of his conquest. So it's an incredible story, it, and it should affirm and reaffirm and excite us that our God is sovereign, that our God is in control. The title of today's sermon is God's Got This, okay? So it should affirm and reaffirm who God is and that he is so powerful enough that he can, in advance, hundreds of years in advance, give prophecy and foretell the future in specific detail. And that, friends, affirms our faith in our God's control Today. So some of this will be a bit repetitive. You see a theme and a pattern going on in Daniel where uh, from the beginning, Daniel has been getting these uh, visions and these dreams from God, telling that these kingdoms would come in succession, right? And so uh, I understand for some of you that, that, can, that can be a bit boring. You're worried. You know, here, here's a couple things. First of all, I promise not to focus on stuff that we've already covered in detail, okay? I'll give as brief of an explanation as I can just in the context of this chapter and we will move on. And secondly, I want you to consider, because this will help you, I want you to consider the context of which this is given. This is given to a people, right? To a man who is from a people, who is God's people. They're in exile. They've been there for years and years and years, generations now. Um, and they're not sure what God's going to do. They're not sure if God is still in control. They're wondering what 
the future is going to hold for their people and for God's plan. And so for them to hear this with such specificity and with a repetitive nature in layering detail is incredibly encouraging. And I think that will help you understand sort of what God was doing in, in, in giving them these visions and telling him, hey, this is going to happen and this will happen. And then there's repetitiveness to that, but then each time it focuses on a different portion. And so we're going to see that today where it's going to give some context to that greater history piece, but it's going to narrow in on a particular season that kind of is in the gap between the Old Testament and New Testament. So it's an incredible story. Let's jump in. Remember, here's what we want to leave here with, it, with this, this message. God's got this, okay? That's the message from today. We're going to leave here with that. You're going to have to hang with me. Get your thinking caps on. Set up straight. We're going to move fast. I don't recommend trying to take notes, but we're going to roll through it. It'll be fun. We're going to try to read all of these. We will not preach something from every passage. We'll try to give an explanation and then uh, settle on a portion at the end that I think will be incredibly encouraging and challenging to us. So let's dive in. Daniel 11, verse 1, it's, it says this, As for me, and this is the angel speaking from last week's message. If you missed last week, I'm sorry, I don't have a ton of time to unpack. But we're in the middle of Daniel. Uh, he's been fasting and praying and, and, and crying out because what he thought was going to happen with God's people isn't happening. He's praying, and he gets this answer. The, the, the angel comes and says, hey, I've been trying to come for three weeks. I've been in spiritual battle with this prince of Persia, but I'm here now to tell you this, to encourage you. And then he says that I'm going I'm to tell you the truths. But he, he, he gives Daniel this weird, seemingly weird um, bit of, of news. He says, this is the angel speaking, as for me in the first year of Darius the Mede, now this is two years prior, because this is in the third year of Darius's reign, two years prior, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Now what's going on in that? Because Darius is a, is a pagan king. Why is an angel coming alongside to, to strengthen and confirm this pagan king? Well, if you, if you know, uh, back in the first year, Darius's reign, this is whenever he sent out a decree that the Jewish people, the Israelites, could go back home. Right? They've been in exile, and he is the one who issues this decree that they can go back home. So what's this angel doing? Seemingly strengthening, strengthening him and confirming in him that that is the right move. So he gives this incredible glimpse back behind this curtain of this man who is in power, who God is using, but this guy's not a believer. He doesn't know God, but God knows him, and God is using him. This gives incredible courage, uh, incredible like layers and substance to the command that we should pray for our leaders. Anybody else struggle with that command to pray for our leaders? You struggle to know what to pray for, and, and especially when they're not believers and you're, you're against their policies, and, and it's, it's sort of be praying in spite. You struggle with that. Anybody else? Well, this gives us some substance to that because we're told that this angel in the spiritual realm comes to confirm and strengthen this pagan king to do God's will. Right? So we don't know all that's going on as our president, whoever he is, and whether you like him, love him, hate him, vote for him or not, we don't know all that's going on in the White House. We certainly don't know the truth that's going on just in the material world, but certainly in the spiritual world, we don't know all that God is doing, but we're commanded to pray, and God indeed sends his angels to accomplish his purposes. And so there may be times whenever our president or leaders throughout the world are, 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 confirmed, are confirmed and strengthened by the prayers of God's people to move God's agenda in the direction that God wants it to go. Amen? So we don't know, but if you don't pretend you know what, what you know, the president is going through or whatever, but instead obey the command to pray for him, pray for moral courage, pray for uh, strength, pray for guidance from God. Like, 
We don't know all the fear and all the swirling that goes on. There may be times whenever that decision, they want to actually make that decision that aligns with God's will. But there's fear of man, fear of the political repercussions. And so we pray. We pray for strength. We pray for moral direction. We pray for God's will to be done through these men. So it's incredible insight there that the angel um, is, is working to strengthen and confirm God's plan in this pagan king named Darius. Okay, so he tells him that. And now he says, verse 2, and now I will show you the truth. So he says, I'm going to tell you what's about to happen. This is an incredible, incredible statement that's going to uh, roll us into an incredible amount of prophecy that's going to cover, um, let's see, I think like 100 and, or no, I, like 200 and almost 300 years of history and, and he's going to say, hey, I'm going to show you the truth. I'm going to show you what's about to happen. So this vision is given to Daniel in 536 B.C. 536 B.C., Persians are in, in control. Uh, and this vision is given to him. And it's going to include Alexander the Great, which is, is nearly 200 years before he comes onto the scene. Um, and this prophecy is going to take us all the way up to um, at least into the end of, of Antiochus Epiphanes' rule in 164 B.C. So that's 372 years. Actually, I, I was looking for it. I did the math. 372 years into the future, God is about to give Daniel in incredible detail. Our God is sovereign, and he is omniscient, and this is incredible. So let's jump in. He says this. I'll show you the truth. Verse 2. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up against the kingdom of Greece. So he's saying, hey, after Darius, there'll be three more kings, and then the fourth will be one who is far richer than all of them. We know this guy is Xerxes, right? And, and um, you, you may have heard of him you know, through different history avenues, but there's also a book of the Bible that's, that's written at Esther in which Xerxes is a primary character in that, where one of God's people named Esther ends up marrying him, and God uses that, that to, to advance his kingdom and to do a work amongst his people and to save his people, to preserve his people. So that's uh, Xerxes. If you know, <clears throat> you know much about that story, he sort of pokes the bear and sets the stage for this battle against Greece, right? There's a movie written about it. You know, there's a lot there within that history. So uh, this is what um, it's talking about here. He shall stir up against the kingdom of Greece, right? Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. So again, this is just God using these. These, these are a couple verses that span this incredible period of history where God uses this uh, pagan king, this pagan nation of Persia to send his people back home. And once that's done, God is done with Persia. And then he's going to bring in Greece through Alexander the Great. And he's going to use that to advance his kingdom, right? To, to uh, advance the language. And, and he has a purpose for, for Greece. But then he's done with them as well. So we see that Alexander, you know the story. He conquers at a great young age. He sits with his hands or his head in his hands because he weeps. There's nothing more to conquer after he gets Persia. And he um, ends up dying at a young age. He doesn't have an heir. And so we know this already. His kingdom is divided into the four winds or geographically to his four generals. Okay, so that, that's what this is foretelling. We've looked at this in great detail in earlier uh, chapters. Um, but, that, but that's what he's saying uh, with which he, you know, he's got uh, not to his posterity or the authority with which he ruled for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. So that's what's going on there. Now we get into verse 
uh, 5 through 20 is going to zero in on two of those kingdoms, okay? So those kingdoms, uh, or those, the kingdom of Greece gets divided into four uh, amongst his generals. We're going to zero in now on the, kings, the kingdoms of the north and of the south. Not because they are the primary players in history, right? Um, we're actually going to, we know that, that one of the, the more primary players in history is the superpower of Rome that's going to be growing the background of this season. However, the reason these two kingdoms are important is because they play a significant role in the life of God's people of Israel. Okay, so we're going to see that it's going to zoom in now to these two kingdoms, and that's where we're going to basically spend the rest of the chapter up until we get to talking about future prophecy that hasn't even been fulfilled yet today. So, y'all with me so far? We're just getting started. So, if your head hurts, just hang on. All right, so um, verse 5, Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he, and he shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. Okay, so the king of the south is strong, and initially um, you see that Israel, so that, that king is Ptolemy, um, and, and that creates this dynasty that is, that is basically Egypt is the seat of that. In the north, uh, Syria is the seat of that kingdom, and, and we begin this, what is going to be the struggle of which Israel, God's people, are going to be in the middle of and get kind of ping-ponged back and forth. If you imagine these two uh, you know, nations being at war, fighting with one another, and then you've got you know, this nation in the middle, they're going to get a lot of, of, of that sort of crossfire. They're going to be shuffled back and forth. And so initially, Israel is a part of the kingdom of the south, and he rules greatly. But then one of his generals, one of his men, uh, abandons him, goes to the, the north, and actually ends up amassing more power than him. That's what it's talking about here um, in verse, I think, 5 and 6. Okay, um, And so, verse 6, After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she will not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up. And her attendants he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. What in the world is that talking about? Well, okay, so eventually this, this, uh, you know, this, this battle, this tension grows, but they, they're fighting with one another, but they decide to make a peace uh, agreement. Oftentimes that would involve a marriage. And so what we have here is um, Ptolemy um, sends his, let me, let me get, let me caught up with my notes here because this is all kinds of chaos. Um, so, a couple generations pass. The initial Ptolemy the first dies. His son takes the throne, and enemies, and, and he's enemies now with Antiochus the second, who is, is ruling in the north. But they form an alliance through marriage. Ptolemy's daughter Bernice, which is an awesome name, uh, was to be married to Antiochus the second. Right. So they're going to send uh, this this woman up to uh, marry to seal this peace treaty. But here's the deal: Antiochus already has a wife and a son who is supposed to be his heir. So you can see the drama building, right? We're going to slip right into soap opera style stuff here in just a minute, okay? So you see the drama building. He's already got a wife and an heir. Now they send this other woman who's supposed to come and marry him in order to be this, uh, you know, this wife that bridges the two kingdoms together, okay? So in order for that to happen, Antiochus has to <clears throat> disown, divorce, disown, and disavow his existing wife and his son. Her name was Laodice. All right, so that happens. He, dis, he divorces or disowns her and disavows. That happens, but watch out because, you know, hell hath no wrath like that of a scorn. Yeah, there's, there's legitimacy to that because old girl is not done. She does not go quietly into the night. This is where we, strip, we set him to straight up like drama TV here because she has all of them killed. All of them. She says, all right, you're going to divorce me. You're going to disown my kid. 
and you're all going down. So she kills the new wife, their baby, and old boy, right? She takes out ex-husband, and her son ends up becoming king after all. So that's what verse 6 is talking about, <clears throat> where she, this, this one who was sent down to bridge the gap, she won't retain the strength of her arm, and he and her arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, he who supported her in those times, okay? So, and from a branch, <clears throat> from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them, and he shall prevail. He shall carry off to Egypt their gods and their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then later shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. So we are just going to now get a whole bunch of back and forth between these two kingdoms. So when this drama goes down, whenever <clears throat> Laodice kills Bernice and her ex-husband and their son, this reignites the battle that was supposed to be, you know, bridged between the, the peace treaty and the marriage, and they go right back at it uh, into war, uh, <clears throat> and we see that um, as this just keeps moving through here, let, let's just read all the way down to verse 17, and we're going to get into sort of a different part, but this, um, we see that for a season, they're not, they're not at war, but then they come back to it in verse 9, uh, verse 10, his son shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces which shall keep coming and overflow the pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north, and he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall be cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. So God gives one of them victory, um, but he takes it, you know, he, he, he lets it go to his head. His head, his, you know, his pride swells, and it ends up, uh, catching up to him, pride goes before the fall. You know that pattern that is set forward here. Verse 13, for the king of the north shall <clears throat> again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come, <clears throat> come on with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times, many shall rise against the king of the south, and violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. So God's own people are going to get in on this battle at different points, right? They're going, to, they're going to rise up to fight as well, but they will fail, according to verse 14. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. So he's going to come, and he's actually going to take Jerusalem. And the force of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. So the north is going to take power, and Israel is going to switch then from uh, purple to, to red, if you will. He's going to be a part of the northern kingdom. But he who, verse 16, But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and shall bring terms of agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Okay, so now we have another uh, drama. So the Syrians, they, they force, so they come in and they, 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 they take over Jerusalem, and they're going to now force peace or terms of peace onto uh, the Egyptian king. And to seal the deal, Antiochus is going to give his daughter and we're a few generations in now. When we say Antiochus, that's, you know, there's, and Ptolemy, those are dynastic kingdoms, and there's going to be like first, second, third, and I'm not even going to try to keep up with it all. But, but Antiochus gives his daughter Cleopatra, not the one who will come a, few, a hundred or so years later and marry Mark Antony, but Cleopatra is sent to um, Ptolemy V as a wife. Antiochus had hoped that she would help advance his, advance his cause in the southern kingdom, 
but it didn't work out that way because she was faithful to her husband and not to her dad, which, by the way, is how it should be, just as a quick side note, right? You leave your father and mother. You, anyway, that's a whole other deal. But, but so it doesn't work out for Antiochus. Instead, she betrays dad and goes against uh, him, and the, the kingdom of the south grows. And so verse 18 uh, and 19 take us to Antiochus's end. Afterward, he shall turn... <clears throat> He shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall bring, or he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Okay, I know I'm, I'm giving you a lot of history. You need to remember this is not history when it is written. It is prophecy. It is history foretold, okay? So I'm giving you the history to show you how God fulfilled it in specific details. And we're blowing through this quick. We're going to land on verse 32 through 35 and, and, and draw some application in just a minute. But we're going through this quick, but here's the history that is given. Um, and here's, here's what uh, we're, we're hearing about, and God fulfills it in specific details. Okay, so, um, so Antiochus is, is angry that it didn't work out with advancing his kingdom in the south. So he now turns his face to the coastlands and starts to try to advance into these coastal islands and these different places. Well, that begins to, to provoke the beast that is becoming Rome. And Rome doesn't like that. They put, a, they put the, the stop to that. They bring some terms. They, they, they make him pay. They, they crush that, that movement toward the coast. And, and they bring that sort of under his rule or under their rule. And then this guy... Uh, disappears, right? He is done. They, he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble, this is the end of verse 19, and fall and shall not be found. Okay, so this guy, he, he uh, basically, we don't know, we, like he, he dies um, it, and he's off the scene. So this is setting the stage um, for his successor. This is all leading toward Antiochus, uh, the fourth Epiphanes, who is going to be this uh, Antichrist-like figure that we've seen that's going to be a primary player in the rest of the chapter, but it's all moving in that direction. And, um, and, and so basically, when he dies, that now leaves his successor with this huge debt to Rome. So verse 20, there shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. So, he get, so Antiochus, I think, um, the third at this point, um, inherits the kingdom, but now he's got this debt he's got to pay to Rome. And so what does he do? He sends out a tax collector. Um, and this guy is collecting. He's going to the richest places in the kingdom, what, part of which is Israel. And he starts collecting a tax to uh, pay back this, this, uh, what he owes to Rome so that he can get back to advancing this kingdom. But within a few days, he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. Okay, so uh, this guy doesn't last very long, but it's not an angry mob and it's not war that kills him. Uh, best known guess is he was actually poisoned by this tax collector who was looking at to take an opportunity upon this deal. But nonetheless, he's out of power, and this sets the stage for Antiochus Epiphanes the fourth to, to step in, and this is where uh, the story will, will sort of settle in on the on the, the rest of the chapter with him. So, uh, verse twenty one: In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He is not of the family line. He does not deserve the throne, but he shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by what? By flatteries. So this guy comes in and he's smooth talking. He's honey-lipped and he begins to gain popularity. He takes the throne and he begins to, to increase the influence. He's beginning to do what previous rulers couldn't do. He starts handing out money. He starts buying the, the, the loyalty of the Israelite people and the different kingdoms. that He's starting to unite this kingdom. This guy is slick. He is smooth, but he is evil. Verse 22, 
Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, and even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully. He shall become strong with a small people. Okay, so alliances are made. He's deceiving, right? This, the, one commentator compared him to like drug cartel type of rule, right? They're going to they're gonna, they're gonna offer something, right, uh, to a, people that are vulnerable to get them on their side. And the moment you make that agreement, you can, you can almost expect he's going to betray you, pull the rug out, and bring deceit. This is how he rules. This is how he's advancing his kingdom. He's deceitful. He's evil. And he is uh, smooth talking. So without, uh, verse 24, without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. This is where he's, he's, he's giving uh, you know, what kings would often keep for themselves and pile up their stockpiles. He instead turns it around and starts giving them back to the people, right? He's building his influence. He's, he's building his, his, uh, his he's, he's looking ahead to make his move, to get his, his, his name on the rise. He's investing in his campaign, if you will. Verse 25, and he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. So he's got his eyes on going back to the south and whipping this guy and taking over this kingdom and advancing this deal, right? So he's going to do that with, he's, he's building an army. Verse 25, and the king of the south shall raise or shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand for plots shall be devised against him. Verse 26, even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail. For their end, <clears throat> for the end is yet to be at the time of the appointed. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. Okay, so these guys go back at battle. Uh, they try to sort of sit down and come to terms. It says they're both sitting at the same table. King of the North, King of the South. They're sitting at the same table. They're sharing lies. They're trying to get the other one on their other side, but there's evil there. Neither one of them intend to honor that, so they get up from the table with nothing done. They leave the table, no peace, no treaties being made, and um, he, he's headed back to his land. He's got great wealth, but now his heart is set against the Holy Covenant. Okay, so on his way back, he decides to stop and um, take out his wrath on God's holy people. This guy is the Old Testament version of Hitler. He kills, I think, something like 80,000 Jews in like three days. He is angry. He, he wants to flex his muscle. He wants to gain his influence. This is over a period of time. But, but he starts out sort of trying to, uh, that's actually later, but he starts out sort of trying to, again, woo these Israelite people into this deal. Now, long before Antiochus Epiphanes comes along, um, we actually see that there's this process within the Israelite nation, uh, within the Greek empire of Hellenization. You see this mentioned in the New Testament. There's Hellenized Jews that, that have sort of embraced this secular movement of Greece, right? So Greece is bringing a lot of prosperity. They're bringing all this secularization. They're bringing in all of this, this, uh, this wealth, and it's appealing, right? They're, 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 they're trying to secularize Jerusalem, right? So they're, they're taking over the education system, and they're, they're, they're building um, gymnasiums and holding sort of mini Olympic games there. So they're starting to turn what God had meant for his religious devotion of his people. They're starting to turn it toward um, advancing the agenda of Greece. Well, Antiochus Epiphanes cranks that up. Like he pulls, pours fuel on that fire. He takes advantage of that increasingly and um, he comes against God's people hard, okay? So, so verse 29, he retreats 
from another attempt to overthrow, and on his way home, he stops to take out his anger on the Jewish people. So verse 29, at the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For the ships of Katim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw. And he shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. What does that mean? Okay, so he tries to make a move. He tries to, to march into the southern kingdom, and it doesn't go well for him. The ships come in for reinforcements. He's like, oh, snap, we ain't ready for that. So he, he leaves disappointed. He leaves angry. He retreats because he's scared, but he's angry. And he wants to take out that anger on somebody. So who does that? Who receives that? It says he takes action against the holy covenant, against God's people. Okay? These are God's people that have been sent back from exile. They've been trying to rebuild the city. In fact, they have rebuilt it. And now they're part of this you know, political tension between these two kingdoms. And this guy is going to take action against the Holy Covenant. It says, uh, at the end of verse 30, he shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. So there are Jewish people, there are Israelite people who have decided they're all in with this Hellenistic movement. They like it. They've been secularized. These are people who love the world. These are people who Paul would later warn about the same manner of which there are people who claim to be God's people, right? They would check the box of Christianity whenever they're taking a survey about what religious affiliation they are. But in reality, they love the world, not Jesus. Their loyalties are with the world and what it can gain them, not Jesus. You know people like this. Perhaps you are still like this. You're here to, to advance what you hope to get out of this world instead of surrendering your life to Jesus. This is a warning against them. And, and these are people who, yes, from an ethnic and, and a religious affiliation standpoint are God's people, but from a heart loyalty standpoint, they are in with Greece. They have forsaken the Holy Covenant. And now this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, sees that as an opportunity to gain influence, to gain their wealth, to gain their loyalty, and to advance his kingdom, his influence on these people. So he's going to focus on those. Pay attention to. Listen, this is how the enemy works. This guy, as we're going to see, is sort of a, a precursor or a, a pre-antichrist type figure, right? And we're going to see that later, he, he's, we're going to see that the, the, the antichrist is going to come later, but this guy's giving shadows of what it's going to be like. We talked about the spirit of Babylon earlier in the book. God has an enemy. He wants to take us out, and he will use education. He will use the secular movement. He'll use the media. He'll use whatever he can to seep into our minds, seep into our hearts, seep into our motivations to turn us against our God. And so he's not stupid. He's paying attention to the people who he knows have forsaken the covenant. That's the, that's the work of the enemy, and that's what this guy does here. Verse 31, Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up an abomination that makes desolation. So he goes so far now as to take over the temple, to set up Zeus, the pagan god, in the Jewish temple. He forbids circumcision. He begins to just move in little by little and sometimes in big swoops and and. Put, a, uh, you know, put an end to the religious liberty that Alexander the Great had put in place years and years before. He's, he's moving in his kingdom. He starts to uh, take these things down and place up his own God, his own agenda. They, so they stop doing the burnt offerings. They stop their sacrifices. They stop sac uh, circumcising new Israelite baby boys, um, which is a huge deal for the people of Israel. 
and he sets up an abomination that makes desolate. Jesus is going to refer to that later in the New Testament. This is where this guy takes a pig, who is an unclean animal, uh, swine into the altar of God, slaughters it, and offers it to his God in the place that is supposed to be kept holy. If you read the book of Leviticus, you get confused. You wonder why there's so many details. It's because God has a specific idea about how he was to be worshipped, and this guy comes and spits in his face. Spits in the face of the holy God, makes this place an abomination. The place that was supposed to be God's temple is now an abomination that causes desolation. The worshipers of God run. They run to the hills. There's, there's more about that at different times, but um, this is what happens. It, verse 32, he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Now, th- now if I've lost you, come back with me right here because this is where it gets awesome, right? So this guy's moving this direction. He's pushing this agenda, and then he runs into some good old country boys and a high priest named Mattathias. And if you've read about the Maccabean revolt, how we got, like, he runs into some country boys that just ain't going to put up with this, right? So he's moving in. He's setting people out into the, into the kingdom to say, okay, you know, take away their altars. Put, and, and so he starts to put people in the high priest role. He sees this role as high priest as nothing more than a political um, position that he can use to advance his kingdom. So they've got faithful high priest. He says, all right, I'm going to take him out, and I'm going to put this guy in place. I'm going to put this guy who will be my puppet in his place, right? So they come to this rule um, old boy named Mattathias, and they say, hey, you got to offer this sacrifice to this pagan god in your temple. He says, uh-uh, won't do it. Nope. And this other guy comes in and says, I'll do it. I'll do it. This other Jew says, I'll do it. Right? So he's, oppor- he's taking an opportunity with this, ev- this movement. It's beneficial to him financially, sec- you know, from a social standpoint. He sees an opportunity to get the in- th- this guy's moving in. This is the future of the kingdom. I'm going to slip in where I can. I'll do it. I'll betray, I'll betray my God. I'll betray my people and all that we've stood for for thousands of years now. I'll, I'll do that. So he steps in, and he's about to offer this sacrifice to this pagan God, and Mattathias kills that joker. He says, no, not today. Mattathias draws a line in the sand and says, no further, no further. It ends here. And he kills that guy, and he kills the Greek general who was there to give the message and enforce the deals. And this sets off a war. This sets off a civil war. Why? Because there's a lot of God's people that are Hellenized, and they're in with this deal. So it sets off this civil war. I love it. This is, this remind, I mean, so many Mel Gibson movies are just coming to mind, right? These country boys are just coming out with their weapons, right? They ain't trained armies. But we see it sets off a civil war. They start this movement. Guess who the first five to enlist are? Mattathias' kids, his boys. It's awesome. They get the nickname later, the Hammer, right? The Maccabees. Why? Because they're going to bring in, they're going to start tearing down the idols that this joker has set up. They're going to go in and cleanse the temples, and it sets off Antiochus Epiphanes. He's angry, and now he's going to send an army. Let me get my my notes here. Antiochus is going to send an army of 60,000 elite warriors to squash this rebellion and commit uh, Jewish genocide. Mattathias' boys, Judah and his four brothers, and the 7,000 men that they muster up out of the kingdom, the faithful, it says, the people who know their God, we're going to come back to this, so stand firm and take action. This is awesome. 7,000 stand up against 60,000, and guess who wins? God's people squashes them. The book of Maccabees records that they actually, which is not Bible, right? It's good history, not Bible. If you've got questions about that, ask me later. I don't have time today. But 
it records that they actually, they huddled up and prayed before that battle. Those boys said, all right, we're going to need God's help. We're going in, right? This, that's our point about, we're going to come back to that. But this is how it goes down. And the apostasy and the compromise of 70 years in Babylon and God's people losing heart in their God is going to be purged in Israel in this moment. And, and, and it takes down this army. Antiochus tries to double down, but he's actually going to be taken out in the midst of that. Let's keep going. Verse 33. And the wise among the people shall make many understand. So that's the recruiting of the 7,000 who, who come into the revolt. Uh, for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery. Okay, so many of God's people are going to go to the other side, but those who are faithful fight against. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they, will be, they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end. For it shall... For it still awaits the appointed time. So if the festival lights, Hanukkah, like they celebrate because they, they take out this, this, um, this army who's come to create, you know, commit genocide. They win the battle. They go back into the temple, tear down the, the, the altar of Zeus, put the, put the rightful pieces back into place. They begin to relight the lamp. But if you know the, the story, there's only enough oil for it to burn for one night, but it lasts for eight, right? This is the, the Jewish festival of Hanukkah, the festival of lights that come in here. You should read this history. It's incredible. We don't have time to talk anymore about it, but it's awesome. So this is what happens in, in those passages. So deep breath. Y'all will still with me? Okay. So now the rest of the chapter is going to be sort of looking ahead. Just give me that mountain picture. So Antiochus Epiphanes is an antichrist type of figure. He is somebody who is against God's kingdom. He is against God's movement. And he uh, comes against, he brings much persecution. He comes in with flattery. He's going to mirror much of what we hear about the Antichrist, which will culminate at the end, okay? So we have in these first 35 verses, literal history that is, that's what we're talking about earlier, the 135 prophecies that are fulfilled as you corroborate them in historical study. As we roll into now verse 36 through 45, we're going to be looking at future prophecy, things that have not been fulfilled, and it's going to be confusing. Here's my quick encouragement. If you were reading this stuff without the historical information that I just shared with you, it's confusing, right? We looked at this in a previous chapter. When prophecy is given, there is a mystery to it where it is not clear on this side of it. We could see parts of it. We get principles. We get hope. We get a clear message, but the details will not be clear until the other side of it. We are on the other side of uh, 1 through 35, okay? So we can point back and go, oh, man, that's what God was doing, and it's incredible. And I just touched on some of those details. Now, when we get to 36 through 45, we are on this side of much of that. And what it's going to put forward is there's this pattern that keeps happening over and over again. We entitled the series of Daniel, A Pattern and a Promise. We're going to see that this pattern is going to continue to happen over and over again, where evil people are going to rise, take power, advance their cause, take a lot of good people down in the, in the midst of it. God's people will remain faithful to some degree, different purifying degree. We'll talk about that in a minute. But this pattern of, of evil, of men uh, being depraved and prideful and so thirsty for power, pride, and possessions that they come filled with bloodlust, this kind of fighting will remain until the king that we heard about in chapter 9 rolls in on the clouds and conquers all of them, okay? So this is what is going to look ahead. Is There's going to continue this pattern and this promise. What he said in detail that we have now seen fulfilled is going to continue in different degrees, the different details with different nations, with different kings, with different rulers until Jesus comes back. 
until the king that comes on the clouds, we looked at in chapter 9, comes in and is handed a kingdom by the Ancient of Days. And at that moment, he will do what no man, king or conqueror, could ever do. And he'll put an end to the fighting. He'll put an end to the strife. He will establish once and for all who rules. And all who are faithful to him will rule forever. And all who don't will be cast into the lake of fire. And that day is what we are looking forward to now. All of this is pointing us, is pointing them ahead to the first coming of Christ. It's getting God's world, God's people, God's message ready for the coming of Christ. And he came. He came exactly how he said he would. He came and fulfilled the prophecies over and over again in great detail. Jesus came just like God said he would. And now we're in this season where everything about history is preparing for the second coming of Christ. It's preparing once again for the coming of Christ, and we look ahead to that. And this is just going to give us this pattern, this perpetual pattern of promise. Okay, so there is a word, a little word says but, and it is used at least 14 times in this chapter. We see it in verse 4, verse 6, verse 7, verse 9, verse 11, verse 12, 14, 18, 19, 20, 21, 25, 27, and 29. Where they started to do this, but. They were going to do this, but. That's given us this pattern. God's in control. God has a plan. They were going to do this, but. God has the control. There is a pattern, but there is also a promise. And that promise still stands, regardless of what details we are in in the moment. And some people would ask, well, where's America in this prophecy? It's not. It's not. America is not the focal point of God's uh, great salvation story. It's not. It's about Jesus. The, the only nation that was a focal point is Israel, right? So we are in the midst of, like, America is not that big a deal in the grand scheme of what God is doing. Does he want to use us? Is there great, incredible resources in it? Absolutely. Does he want to push those resources out? I think so. Do you want to use us for the great advancement of his kingdom? Absolutely. Am I grateful to be a part of this country? 100%. But are we the primary? No. Okay, so we have to remember that and know that there is a pattern set forward of prideful people that will pursue power, pursue possessions, pursue influence over and over again, and it will come and it will go. But God has not bailed. He has not lost control. He's working all things out for his promise, okay? That's the point. We're going to read this quickly, and then we're going to circle back around to our boy Mattathias and get some application for us, all right? So we're going to read 36 through 45 quickly. I just want you to hear, you listen to that pattern, know that a lot of this is yet to come, and it will be clear one day. Just like Dan this was not clear to Daniel. What we just read was not clear to Daniel, but it is clear to us on this other side. So there will be one day when we Jesus comes back and we're all in heaven. We're going, oh, that's the details he was talking about in Daniel 11. That's how that played out. But we're not going to see it clearly now. It's going to be confusing and there's details that we don't know. So verse 36, and the king shall do as he will. So there's going to be overlap here. It's kind of, we, we talked about this before. Sometimes when prophecy is given, we could see from this kind of front view, oh, that's the mountain range. It's that and it's that. But we don't see from the side view that there's a long valley in between. So there's going to be overlap here. It's talking about the king, some layers, some reference to Antiochus Epiphanes, right? But, but some also looking forward. Does that make a little bit of sense? It's both and. It's some um, you know, fulfilling of this prophecy, but it's also looking ahead to a greater future fulfillment. So I know that's not super clear, but that's kind of where we got to camp out and, and, you know, lay our faith to bear. So he shall exhibit, or he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every God and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till his indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other God for he shall himself 
for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. A God whom his fathers did not know, and he shall not honor with, or he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortress, and shall, with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many, and divide the land for a price. He's going to make it profitable to come against God. He's going to make it profitable to join sides with him. Verse forty. And at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack. But the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen. With many ships, he shall come into countries and, and he shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land. That's talking about Jerusalem and Israel. Uh, and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand. Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of old and of silver, and all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans, and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end, and none to help him. Okay, so again, that's talking about some end time stuff. There's, light, there's stuff to be kind of mind out of that, but we're going we're gonna to sort of leave that. We'll reference it a bit next week when we talk about lessons to learn when awaiting the end times, right? Um, and so we're, we're going to leave it at that. We're going to let that see that there's going to continue this pattern, that what we see from the north and the south, the battle back and forth, the tension, the, the battle for army, that God's people being brought under this rule and tossed and, 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 and persecuted and, and purged, that's going to continue, it's going to continue, and it's going to culminate one day with, it, with the ultimate Antichrist who sort of brings that to, to full bear that we see in the New Testament, that God will then come and squash that joker, bring in his rule and reign forever, right? That's what the angel has said earlier. Hey, just so you know, Daniel, God's people win. Despite of what you see right now, God's people win. You win. God's saints, they will be the ones ruling. They will be the ones on the right side of history when history is over. Amen? So we remember that. We expect a pattern of Evil rule of advancement of that over and over again, it's going to continue, but the promise stands within that, that he has not forsaken us, that he has control of the world. We have no idea how hard it is to be God. No idea. All these details, all these little things he's talking about hundreds of years before they happen, down to the, to the person he's calling them out. God has a plan. He's in control. We cling to that. We don't have to know the future. We simply get to know the one who does. Amen? That's the pattern and the promise Remember, these people tried to do this, but over 14 times we see that God intervened and redirected it to the direction that he wanted it to go. So what do we do with this? I want to go back to verse 32. In the midst of that rebellion, in the midst of God's church being come against and, and brought with flattery and secularization and people loving the world instead of God's ways, I want to go back to our boy Mattathias and I want to look. Verse 32, it says this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, the enemy. And we can, we can use that synonymously. This is going to be the pattern of God's enemy is to continually work in this manner, to seduce and to flatter God's people and all of the world into rebellion against the Holy Covenant, against our faith, okay? So he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Let's be people who know our God. Church, 
There's all kinds of nonsense happening. There is a re-indoctrinization. There's a redefinition of gender, of marriage, of, of, of faith. There's all these things, all these movements happening, and they're going to continue to happen. We shouldn't be surprised by that. But what we should focus on is being a people who know our God. Amen? Because when persecution happens, it also equals a purification of his church. So that's the final point. God's got this. Right? There'll be a pattern and a promise that will keep going. The third and final point is that when persecution happens, it also equates to a purification of God's church. As we see, that's what, that's what happens. Uh, verse 33, And the wise among the people shall um, make many understand. Right? So there's going to be faithful that as uh, you know, those Maccabean boys are, are rolling around and, and, and recruiting, there's going to be many who understand and join forces and are, are faithful to the church. But... Many, the end of verse 34, shall join themselves to them with flattery. So many will be brought to the other side. There will be a purging. There will be a, a, a purification process of God's people here. All those who, over those 70 years of, of captivity, where their hearts were drawn away, they, you know, again, we talked about Daniel and his boys, you know, resolving not to be defiled by the, the Babylonian kingdom. Well, there was plenty who didn't make that resolution, and they went right along with the Babylonian captivity. Right? They are purged, and the purification happens in that moment. Yes, there's persecution that comes against God's people, but through that persecution comes a purification of God's church. So yes, we are entering into a season that, that looks to be um, more like persecution than most of us have, have ever witnessed. Now, still, we talk to our brothers and sisters in China and throughout the world, and we got nothing. But as we see that stuff coming, our focus doesn't need to be on fighting every little cultural battle and every little fight and war, making sure we know where we stand. Our focus needs to be on making sure we know our God because it says the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Let's be a people who know our God. Let's be a people who instead of fighting every battle on Facebook and picking apart every opinion that's out there and trolling everybody, instead, let's get our nose in the Bible. Let's disciple our kids. Let's raise up some kids that'll be like Mattathias's boys and go to war when the time comes that know their God, that will take action. Let's be those people. Let's focus on discipling ourselves, our families, and all those around us so that when the pressure is put on and it is time for us to draw a line in the sand and say no more, we'll be a people who know our God. Amen? Let's be that sort of people. Let's raise those sorts of kids. Let's make them ready to understand their God, to see the differences, to wade through the mess of this world, to teach them that this pattern will keep happening, but we can remain faithful because the promise holds firm. Amen? Let's be those sort of people. If you're here and you haven't been walking the walk, right? You say it, right? You ain't living what you, what, you're not practicing what you preach. However you want to put that in, today's the day to repent and fall in line and become somebody who's committed to our God. Today's the day to let ourselves be purified. We don't have to wait for the purge of the world. We don't have to wait for that level of persecution. Today is the day to fall upon our knees. Like Joshua says, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Let's be that. Let's be that. Let's pray. God, help us. Help us to be a people who know our God. Help us to be a people who fight in the right time, in the right way, and for your name's sake. We need wisdom. We need discernment. We need guidance to do that, but help us to be uh, firmly known by you and that we would know you so that we would follow you in the midst of this pattern of chaos. 
that we could see a hope that remains true and a, and a promise that stands firm in the midst of this world. Help us, Jesus. We ask these things in your name. Amen.